0: Picture it, a new nation, under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. But tragedy strikes. The president dies in office. Who takes over? The vice president, obviously. Well, it was not so obvious in 1841 when William Henry Harrison became the first president to die in office, and the government had no idea what to do next. Do your civic duty and learn about the death of President William Henry Harrison on this week's This Was a Thing.
1: This was a thing, that was a thing, Lord Almighty, what a thing. States like Maine and Wyoming, Lally Cooper, what a thing. Oh, Susanna, Lordy, what a thing. Oh, that hairpin pilfering, Lord Almighty, what a thing. Hi, I'm Ray. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. On
0: today's episode, we are looking at the death of of ninth president, William Henry Harrison. This was a thing because it was the first time the United States, not yet 100 years old, had to deal with the death of a sitting president. That's William Henry Harrison. Now, since Harrison's death, seven more sitting presidents have died. One resigned, three were impeached, and a few almost were forced out before their time due to private health concerns. Each of these men after Harrison accomplished much more in their individual terms than Harrison did in his 31 days in office, the shortest term on record. But it was his passing that threw the nation into an almost forgotten, unprecedented crisis. So. Who was William Henry Harrison, besides Sam Waterston's shorter doppelganger? (laughs) He was an incredibly popular and respected general in the U.S. Army, mostly slaughtering indigenous persons. That was his big claim to fame. His most iconic victory was in 1811 at the Battle of Tippecanoe, which was Tippecanoe's maiden name, I believe. There, Harrison crushingly defeated the army of indigenous leader Tecumseh, who committed the unforgivable sin of trying to protect his own land, land which America then took for themselves in their manifest destiny. Harrison was so celebrated for this victory, he received the nickname of Old Tippecanoe. And at age 38, I think that's kind of (laughs) mean. Hey, old old tippecanoe. Tippecanoe. And sometimes he just went by Tippecanoe.
1: Yeah, just look. I'm not old, OK, just tip a canoe. AK, hey, old T. No, God damn it. <laughs> now, will going we be s- president one day and show <laughs> these people? I'll show y'all, and
0: I'll live forever, you hear. <laughs> then he sang fame <laughs> and danced on a horse and buggy. Now, what was uh, Harrison doing those 38 years before Tippecanoe? Well, besides being the last president to be born under British rule, he was secretary of the Northwest Territory, which is now the position held by the cast of Portlandia. (laughs) He was a congressman for this territory. And it was interesting, as a territory congressman, he got to do everything in Congress except vote. He was the governor of the Indiana Territory. This was a position that he did not seek and was surprised he got, (laughs) but was able to do such things as get slavery allowed in Indiana. Ah. But he resigned to go back and fight in the War of 1812. He just can't keep a good army general down. Then he was the congressman for Ohio, then the senator for Ohio. And then he just went back to being a private citizen. He didn't really accomplish that much in his uh, pre-presidential political life. He also doesn't accomplish much in his post Presidential political <laughs> life, but in 1836, at the ripe age of 63, he was drafted by the Whig Party, which sounds like a drag race podcast, <laughs> to run against Democratic Vice President Martin Van Buren for the uh, for the presidency. Now, the Whigs were only around for about 20 years or so, and they and advocated the rule of law, written and unchanging constitutions, and protections for minority interests against majority tyranny. Tell that to Tecumseh. So, the Whigs had a unique approach to this election, which was to run more than one Whig candidate for president. So, once again, folks, they're going to run more than one Whig candidate for president. All right. Now, the idea being that no one would get a majority of electoral votes, and then the election would have to go to the House of Representatives. So, in addition to Harrison, you had three other folks in the race. Okay. Okay. This plan does not work. Yeah. Van Buren wins a majority of the Electoral College and a majority of the popular vote, but it was close. The popular vote was actually kind of close, and it showed how close Harrison could be at beating Van
1: Buren. So you're saying that uh, the people of America were down with MVB? They were down with MVB. Did you work on that campaign? I tried. I I made a couple stickers. So, folks, you
0: almost have to imagine, like, we'll use the 2020 election. It's almost like saying, okay, Donald Trump is going to run as the Republican nominee, But for the Democratic nominee, you could pick Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Pete or Marianne Williams. Marianne Williams. Thank you. So it it kind of makes sense when you think about it, because the idea would be that there was no electoral majority because everyone was going to be like split. Because remember, you have to get to a number. Remember, you have to get to an electoral number. So they were like, it'll be decided by the House and then the House will pick him. Didn't work. Right as Van Buren took office, the panic of 1837 set in, and that made Van Buren incredibly vulnerable. And Harrison was drafted by the Whigs again to run, and this time they ran on his war record because... America Loves a War Hero. Now, what's really interesting, I think, about this campaign is it's a, it's the election of 1840 is something we don't really think about all that much because it gave birth to William Henry Harrison, who's only in office for 31 days, so we don't really think about it as being an impactful election. But believe it or not, it's actually creating the modern way of campaigning today, Oh wow. which is lots of mudslinging. And Facebook posts. And Facebook posts. Martin Van Buren, big on the FB. <laughs> <laughs> Harrison, Twitter guy, John Tyler, Snapchat. Oh, John Tyler Snapchatted me again. <laughs> what does he have to say? Oh, boy. That's a dick pic. Yeah, it's, Look, oh. it's his son, Dick. <laughs> Isn't he cute? Van Buren and the Democrats went on the attack against the elderly Harrison, who, if elected, would be the oldest president by labeling him, quote, as Granny Harrison, the petticoat general, because he resigned from the army before the War of 1812 ended. Petticoat oh, general? Petticoat
1: general? <laughs>
0: <laughs> they said uh they said that grandpa Harrison grandma ha- granny Harrison would rather quote sit in his log cabin drinking hard cider <laughs> than do work so instead of being like hey fuck you <laughs> he could be like the angry orchard spokesman actually uh Harrison and Van Buren were the Bartletts and James guys that sat on the porch <laughs> drinking their coolers Harrison instead of running away from this claim adopted the log cabin and the hard cider as his campaign symbols okay all to appeal to the common man damn they're like oh shit this This backfire there's a lot of backfiring in 1836 and 1840 and they were like they're like (laughs) harrison is the common man harrison was not the common man he was very wealthy and very aristocratic above these above these people
1: i'll take a hard cider though
0: but i will take a hard cider but that's how the campaign portrayed him to the world especially when they contrasted him to the oh so wealthy Martin Van Buren, who was very lavish in his tastes. Here is a campaign song (laughs) that uh, they made up uh, during this campaign to show everyone that Harrison was a common man and Van Buren was not. Old Tip, that was Harrison. He wore a homespun coat. He had no ruffled shirt, wort wort. But Matt, he has the golden plate and he's a little squirt, wort wort. Now, you might go, what is wort wort? That is the sound of them spitting tobacco juice. So you would chew tobacco, and to show your disdain of Martin Van Buren, the wort wort was spitting the tobacco out. And here is a version by the Beach Boys. And it was also in the very famous Hamilton song, wort wort Eliza. That's why there were so many slips on the stage (laughs) during that number. And as for his vice president, Harrison picked John Tyler, who kind of looks like Francis McDormand's boyfriend in Nomadland, David Stratham. Now, here's where it's interesting. Remember, Harrison was a Whig. Tyler, for most of his life, was a Democrat and then got pissed at Andrew Jackson and is like, now I'm a Whig. So they put him on the ticket to attract states' rights Southerners to a Whig coalition. Does that make sense? Yeah. They want to get – they can get the Harrison votes. They can get these people's votes. They have, like, people that are questioning. So he's, like, a, a nice, good choice for vice president.
1: The coalition.
0: And it also gave birth to probably the most popular political slogan in history. Do you know what it is? Uh, I like Ike. No. Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. Oh, yeah. You're going to get old Tippecanoe and you'll get John Tyler. Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. It's, not, it's great. Look at the alliteration. Uh, no, I... I've heard it before. I will say, I do say, I am a fan of I Like Ike, because you get those keys, but those Ks in there, but Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. Must have sounded great. Worked, worked. Um, <laughs> and it worked, worked, worked. And uh, Harrison was elected the ninth president of the United States. Now, this is where we start to have some trouble. So uh, oh, trouble. back then, the inauguration happened on March 4th, and 68-year-old Harrison had a little bit of a dilemma. How do I let the country know and Washington know that I am not the backwoods person they made me out to be, (laughs) that I'm not, you know, sit on the porch and have a cider, you know, Um, but an incredibly smart leader? And how do I let them know that I'm not old and frail? Because he's 68, the oldest president elected. And he goes, I know my inauguration speech and my wardrobe. The weather that day was cold and damp. And Harrison was like, I don't need a coat or a hat. Okay, fine. But let's move the speech along and get you indoors. And he's like, nope. And William Henry Harrison holds a record. Shortest term in office, but also the longest inaugural address. Do you know how many words it was?
1: Oh, geez. 1,420.
0: 8,445 words. And that was after Daniel Webster edited for him because he's like, this is too long. The speech ran over two hours. So there he is
1: in the cold, 68 years old. No coat, no hat. Talking for two hours. Like I, I know that fact about the longest speech and shortest term. But wow, eight thousand words. That's a long. He's he's got a speech. He's got a monologue for us. Then Harrison was offered a carriage
0: to take him to the White House, and he's like, "Nope, I'm going to ride a horse." Then he stood in a three-hour receiving line. He went to three balls that night, and the next day, I think he realized he made a mistake. (laughs) Um, Not with the coat or the speech. But he had been advised to have an administrative system in place for his presidency before the inauguration. And he said, nope, I kind of want to focus on the parties. I'm being serious. I, 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 don't, I don't doubt it. So because there was nobody like ready to work, job seekers awaited him at all hours of the night. And there was no process for like organizing them and vetting them. And he kept meeting with all these people. So automatically, he's he's working and shaking hands of people, but have a lot of germs. 21 days later, on March 26th, Harrison starts to feel a little bit under the weather. And his doctor says, you should rest tonight. And Harrison's like, nope, I'm meeting up uh, more people today that I need to hire. And I'm having a party tonight for my buddies. Oh. So no rest. No. no rest for this man. And then March 27th, the next day, he's in the middle of a cabinet meeting. And he gets the chills. And they're like, it's time for bed, buddy. March 28th. He has a high fever and the doctors come in and they go, oh, this is, it's pneumonia. It's pneumonia from the inauguration. Who gets pneumonia three weeks later? I don't know, <laughs> but apparently it's like, it's pneumonia. We should also point out that Harrison liked to get up every morning and get groceries for himself. At the wet mark. <laughs> he had guess where the groceries were? He had to walk through marshland to go to the grocery store. And I think it was like a three mile walk. <laughs> so, Okay. Let's get him into, this is the doctors, let's get him into bed, undress him, and bloodlet him. <laughs> and they did that by placing hot cups on his body to form bleeding blisters, because that was the practice of the day. You would, like, drain the blood, and the disease would come out. Oh, my God. Now, surprisingly, he doesn't improve. Oh, God. Isn't this a shocker? So it's, uh, let's, let's come up with some more drastic, <laughs> drastic unconventional methods of, of healing this man. Uh, he drinks castor oil. They rub mustard on his stomach, and then they try an indigenous concoction of petroleum and snake root. And somehow he's getting worse. How is this possible? They're giving him so many wonderful things. Now, recently it's been theorized that Harrison actually died from enteric or typhoid fever relating to Washington's Water supply because the symptoms that he had when he was dying, which was like a sinking pulse and you know, cold and blue extremities, that's all symptoms of septic shock. And so they feel like it wasn't the inauguration that killed him, it was probably drinking contaminated water, and that's where it matches up. Because once again, you know, the weather actually was like 48, it wasn't that cold, cold yeah. out, you know, it wasn't too r- rainy. So it was a nice day. And like, who gets, I mean, who gets like pneumonia three weeks later? You know, so now the 28th, because remember, folks, this is only happening like in in, in just a 48 hour period in the 28th. The 28th was a Sunday and people noticed that Harrison was absent from the two churches that he would attend on Sundays. And so they were like, I think something might be wrong. But the White House never made any statements about it. And people never saw him again. So they're all like, I think something might be wrong be up. They can't prove it. No one knows what's going on. So huge crowds started to gather outside the White House holding vigils. Rumors were starting to leak out that something was going on with him. He was sick. We don't know. And finally, the Baltimore Sun let out a bulletin that said, quote, we are led to fear the worst result. And then on April 4th, 1841, exactly one month after he was inaugurated, Harrison died. And his last words were, quote, sir, I wish you to understand the true principles of the government. I wish them carried out. I ask nothing more. End quote. Which they think was directed at John Tyler, his vice president, the new president, or the acting president. Or what exactly was John Tyler? And.
1: A Democrat.
0: <laughs> and to quote a great founding father, Benjamin Franklin. Oy vey, we have service. Oh. Now, the Founding Fathers were not stupid, and they had a contingency plan if the president died or resigned. And it's the Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 6. And it says, I'm going to read it to you. In case of the removal of the president from office or of his death, resignation, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, the same shall devolve on the vice president... And the Congress may by law provide for the case of removal, death, resignation, or inability both of the President and Vice President, declaring what officer shall then act as President, and such officer shall act accordingly until the disability be removed or a President shall be elected. Okay, here's the main, and don't worry, here's the main issue, folks. What does, quote, the same mean? Remember, So here's really the first part you need to know. In case of the removal of the president from office or of his death, which is what we have here, resignation or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office, being the president, the same shall devolve on the vice president. So the same duties. So what does the same mean? Yeah. He's the president? Or is he assuming the duties, but he isn't the president? Like, what do you call him? Is he president, Tyler? Is he acting President Tyler? I call him John. Is he Vice President Tyler? Is he T-Bone? Which is how I knew him in high school. Johnny T. And actually, while we're at it, what does inability to discharge mean? We'll talk more about inability a little bit later on. Inability to discharge. You know, I think I've had that problem yeah, a few <laughs> times. To say. Now, this clause that they wrote was vague, and it was up for interpretation. But this crisis, it, it wasn't being conjectured. Like, what do we do if? It was happening... Right now, and it was happening for the first time. This is crazy. So on April 5th, a day after Harrison dies, 51-year-old John Tyler, who's in Virginia, gets a knock on the door, and it's two men to say, Harrison's dead. Congratulations. So he gets his shit together, and he gets to Washington at 4 a.m., and he's all ready to lead, but Harrison's cabinet is like, you have to take the oath of office. And Tyler says, I'm not taking the presidential oath. He's like the my he goes, my vice presidential oath covered the eventuality of my ascension to the presidency. He's like, I don't need to take this oath. I'm the president. But you would think that he would want to. He didn't want to. He was like, I don't need to do this, guys. Girl, I don't need to do that. I don't need this shit. So now they're having a discussion. Because the vice presidential oath kind of you know implies that he would take over. Do they need to give him an oath? Or who's in charge here is really a big question. Who's yeah. in charge? So his cabinet, this was Harrison's cabinet, which is now Tyler's cabinet, and many other officials like disagree. Does he take the oath? Does he not take the oath? Is he the president? Is he not the president? So they go to ask the chief justice of the Supreme Court, Roger Tanney, and he said, basically, quote, I don't want, quote, the suspicion of desiring to intrude into the affairs which belong to another branch of government. So basically what he's saying is, is like, I do the judicial This is not my department. I'm okay. You'll have to take that up with HR on the 11th floor, is what he said. And he just quietly closed the door. There are 11 floors? What is that? But he said if Tyler took the oath of office, he would be president. So he's like, otherwise, we kind of don't have a president. So Tyler decided to take the oath in public on April 6th, 1841 at noon at Brown's Indian Queen Hotel. I really wished it was a La Quinta in ballroom. But there was a wedding there that day.
1: <laughs> but there was a
0: buffet at Brown's
1: Indian Hotel.
0: <laughs> so he takes the oath of office after a lot of debate about should he, should he not. And then he just doesn't make any friends in this cabinet because the cabinet, This remember, this is Harrison's cabinet. They say to him, so, John, what we do is is we decide everything. And whatever the majority was, Harrison just went along with that. So Harrison just sort of kind of sat there, apparently. And then they had a majority vote, and then they were like, we voted yes, Harrison. He was like, okay, great. It's going to be yes. And Tyler says, cocky bitch, he says, quote, I'm the president, and I shall be held responsible for my administration. I shall be pleased to avail myself of your counsel and advice, but I can never consent to being dictated to as to what I shall do or not do. And when you think otherwise, your resignations will be accepted. Oh, So he's not messing around on the first day. Still, people didn't think he was the president, even though he was sworn. They just think he's the acting president. Like Harrison's on vacation. The man's dead. Like, it's not (laughs) like he's going to come back. Like, like we we need a president. So one congressman proposed calling him, quote, (laughs) ready for this title? Put this on like, you know, a placard. The vice president on whom? By the death of the late president, the powers and duties of the office of president have devolved. Could you imagine before the State of the Union? Mr. Speaker, the vice president on whom by the death of the late president, the powers and duties of the office of president have devolved. And then one congressman who's been out of town goes, where's Harrison? (laughs) Didn't you hear he died? What? I canceled my news subscription. (laughs) Oh, fuck. Well, I didn't really cancel it. The pony died. He
1: was the future of the Whigs. God damn it. Oh, God. The Whigs were going to be the next American power.
0: I told my wife we should have kept subscribing. <laughs> <laughs> well, the public had a simpler name for him. Jerry. His accidency. Okay. John Quincy Adams, who was the sixth president, said Tyler was, quote, with talents not above mediocrity, And a spirit incapable of expansion to the dimensions of the station on which he has been cast by the hand of Providence. So, basically, we got trouble.
1: Right here in Washington, D.C.?
0: A little side note, because I don't want to talk about Tyler's administration. Tyler uh, eventually voted for all the Democratic things and got kicked out of the Whig Party. Okay. (laughs) And his entire cabinet resigned. In protest. So, wait, his cabinet resigned. Yeah, the cabinet, except one person, was like, "This is fucked up. Like, you're not a wig."
1: What about his cupboard? No, the cupboard stayed. Okay. Cupboards are loyal.
0: Yeah. The lazy Susan, she didn't do anything. (laughs) Hey, friends. Hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, could you do us a favor? After you listen to today's episode, open up your podcast app and leave us a review. Please! The more reviews we get, the more people will discover us, and the more people that discover us, the less lost
1: we'll feel. You're good, buddy. It's okay. Uh, look, nothing has ever been easier to do. Just go ahead and grab a pen real quick. It's okay. We'll wait. Don't worry.
0: Okay, head on over to your podcast app, click those three dots in the lower right-hand corner... Click Go to Show, scroll down till you see ratings and reviews, then leave us some stars and a comment or two so our parents know that it was
1: worth all the tuition that they spent. And if you really love us, head on over to Patreon.com and send us some money. And in return, you will get access to merch, special episodes, bonus content, pictures of me shirtless. Okay, okay, that's P A T. R-E-O-N
0: dot com. Search this was a thing and help us out. But you know what? You've already helped us out today by listening to us. And we can't tell you how much we appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you. So when Congress convened in May of that year, it passed a resolution confirming Tyler is the president. And what came from that was the Tyler precedent, meaning it is implied that if a president dies, resigns, or is impeached, the vice president becomes the new president. But once again, folks, this is implied. This is not law. Ten years later, when President Zachary Taylor died of food poisoning in 1850. What? Yeah, oh, yeah, he died of food poisoning. Bad cherries. His vice president became the president without any sort of controversy because we had had the Harrison Tyler thing ten years ago. So there was no issues. It was just like, boom, swear him in. Great. He's the new president. Taylor's gone. Now, what's not implied is the curse of Tippecanoe. Are you ready for some freaky shit? Hell yeah. It was lore that the Shawnees were so angry at Harrison, Tecumseh, right, that they put a curse on him and he died. And now the curse of Tippecanoe basically is the supposed pattern of deaths in office by presidents- who won the elections in years that are evenly divisible by 20 since the 1840 election. Meaning, if you were elected in 1840, 1860, 1880, 1900, 1920, 1940, 1960, 1980, 2000, 2020, you will die in office. So let's see. In 1860, Lincoln was elected. In 1880, Garfield, who shot. In 1900, McKinley, who is shot. 1920, Warren Harding dies in office. 1940, Franklin Roosevelt dies in office. 1960, John Kennedy dies in office. 1980, shot, shot does not die, and they think that broke the curse of Tippecanoe because Reagan.
1: That's fucking crazy. Reagan survived
0: twenty years. W survived. And knock wood Joe Biden. So I think the curse is broken.
1: So while America
0: felt it was okay to go on this way with this implied precedent, there was nothing to ever stop this from being challenged or if someone said, you're not the real president. And there were a few other crises in the executive branch that were narrowly avoided after William Harrison's death that revolves around succession. The first one is the vice presidency. This was in the constitution originally. The vice presidency, if vacant... Cannot be filled until the next election. Oh. So Tyler couldn't say, okay, I'm the president, and now I'm going to pick this person to be my vice president. Interesting. He had to wait till the next election. I think the vice presidency has been, like, vacant 16 times or so. Oh,
1: I had no idea. I think, yeah. So when Democrat
0: Andrew Johnson was under impeachment proceedings, the uh, vice presidency was vacant. Okay. Because, remember, he took over for Lincoln. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had he been impeached... No vice president would have taken over. It would have gone to the Republican president pro tempore. So the president pro tempore in the Senate was a Republican. So that's a crisis. Then here's the second point, folks. In 1919, Woodrow Wilson suffered a stroke that was covered up practically by his wife and doctors who were running the country because he was unable to. When it was revealed, that he had had a stroke and was pretty much incapacitated. No one really wanted to press it because Wilson was almost done with his term. That's a bit of a problem. Yeah. And then leave it to another military man like William Henry Harrison to spark the wheels of motion on this topic, and that's 34th President Dwight Eisenhower. So Ike, who presided over the nifty 50s, was plagued with health problems like a bad heart, and he wanted to make sure the government was always running if he was incapacitated. Great military man. He likes strategy. So he and the attorney general, Herbert Brownell Jr. wrote an agreement between Eisenhower and Eisenhower's vice president, Richard Nixon, on what would happen if Ike was incapacitated and how Nixon would lead and delegate, most importantly, show the world, especially during the Cold War, that the government was still functioning. Now, this is great. Here's the problem. It's not a legal document in any sense of the word. It's just practically a gentleman's agreement. It's not in the Constitution. This can involve. This is just between two men. So in 1963, there's a New York senator, and his name is Kenneth Keating. He's a Republican. And he said, listen, something needs to be codified so there isn't any more of these, like, yay, it worked this time scenarios. (laughs) What if, like, John Tyler had said, no, I'm not the acting president. I'm still going to I'm the vice president. I'm just doing the that would have changed history. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or I'm the vice president. Therefore, I'm going to perform my duties the way that my predecessor had in his absence. Oh, He Y'all just voted on this and he gave great. You know what I mean? So good to have some instructions here. So Keating, the senator from New York, Keating, he proposed a constitutional amendment, which is what we needed, which would have enabled Congress to enact legislation providing how to determine when a president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of the presidency. So the Congress is going to say, you're dead, or we think you're sick. And everyone says to Mr. Keating, we can't do that because it could be partisan and it could be dangerous. This is all so crazy. I know, right? But there was a Tennessee senator named Estes Kefauver. You got one. I finally got my weird name. Yeah. I say to Ray when we do these, Ray always brings names to me that I'm I'm sure made up, and I never have a fun name. And now I had one, Estes Kefauver, and he was a Democrat from Tennessee. And he's like, Nope, I agree with Keating. We need that. We need to find a solution. Maybe his solution isn't the best, but we need to find a solution. So let's do that. And then Keating, I mean, then Kefauver dies in August of 1963, and everyone's like, Okay. We can move on. Oh, boy. November 22nd, 1963. Now, here is a real crisis right in the middle of the Cold War. Kennedy is shot. And you have to remember that nobody exactly knew who shot him, how badly was he shot. There was a rumor going around that Vice President Lyndon Johnson, who was in the car behind him, was also shot. So there's no like plan here, folks, plus we had had the Cuban Missile Crisis the previous year, the Russians, Cold War, we might have a problem. What if Kennedy was shot, but he survived, and now he's paralyzed, or he's incapacitated? What if Kennedy's dead, and Johnson takes over, and Johnson, who didn't have the best health, what if he has another heart attack between now and 1964 and the election when he, if he got reelected, he'd be allowed to appoint a new vice president? You know what I mean? So, Everyone's like, what the fuck do we do? Luckily, Johnson took over, was able to make it to 1964, put Hubert Humphrey as his vice president, and everything was fine. But once again, we're in really close calls here. In 1965, Senator Birch Bayh of uh, Indiana, Democrat, and a congressman, Emanuel Seller, who was uh, a congressman from New York, Democrat, proposed a resolution that would codify all of these scenarios, okay? Okay and there are four sections, four sections. Uh, number one is basic. If the president is removed from office, the vice president will become the president. Okay, He's the president. He's not an acting president. He's not this. He's not, you know, he's the president. Number two, this was the second clause. The president can nominate a vice president to replace the vice president if both houses give that person a majority vote. You, you see that with Nixon and Gerald Ford, but if you're a West Wing fan... When John Hoynes leaves, and they replace him with Bingo Bob Russell. Got it. This is kind of going along with, like, the Ike, you know, I have a heart attack, but I'm still alive, and Woodrow Wilson, he's had a stroke, but he's still alive. All right? This is a long one, but bear with me. If the president, in a written declaration delivered to the Speaker of the House and President Pro Tempore of the Senate his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. And until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the vice president as acting president. Also seen in the West Wing. Have you never seen the West Wing? I've seen enough, but I I should watch it all. But tell me the president's daughter is kidnapped and they think she's been kidnapped by terrorists. And President Bartlett transfers the power to, now that's where it's confusing. There's no vice president at this time. They haven't appointed a new vice president in this in this episode. So it goes to the Speaker of the House. But anyway, what the president does is he writes a letter saying, I'm still the president. I'm taking a leave. When I'm gone, this person's in charge. And when I feel like I'm ready to come back, here's another letter saying, I'm ready to come back. And then he becomes president again. Make sense? Yeah, 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 This is actually the most common one of these that we've had since was, was, this was enacted, believe it or not. Now, this is the one that I think was talked about the most in the past few years, and this is the fourth section of all this. The case of a president who is unable to discharge the powers and duties of the presidency, but cannot or does not execute the voluntary declaration completed by Section 3. This basically was for two, two purposes, kidnapping and incapacitation. So let's say somebody's kidnapped the president. He can't sign any letters because he's kidnapped, kidnapped. So the vice president will have to take over. Or what if he's incapacitated? He's had like a Woodrow Wilson situation. He's had a stroke. He can't do anything. And so he can't sign anything or make rational decisions. Okay, then the vice president will take over. But there's only two ways this clause, this section, I'm sorry, this section can get enacted. One is you need to have a majority of cabinet officers say, we think he's incapacitated. He can't do his duties. So there's 15 cabinet members. So you need a majority of that. This is hard because this is very different than impeachment because uh, I'll explain why in a second. You need two thirds of the House of Representatives to say they're incapacitated and two thirds of the Senate to say they're incapacitated. Now, unlike impeachment, which is just House majority. Yeah. And two thirds of the Senate. OK, but it's really to cover in their minds. He's kidnapped. He's incapacitated. And that's not really what we were dealing with in the past four years or so. Yeah. And we'll talk about that. So in 1967, the 25th amendment, which had those four sections was ratified. And Lyndon Johnson said, I thought this was so interesting. It was 180 years ago in the closing days of the constitutional convention that the founding fathers debated the question of presidential disability. John Dickinson of Delaware asked this question. What is the extent of the term disability? And who was to be the judge of it? No one replied. It is hard to believe that until last week, our Constitution provided no clear answer. Now, at last, the 25th Amendment clarifies the crucial clause that provides for succession to the presidency and for filling a vice presidential vacancy. And thank God they did this in 1967, because by 1977, they might have been able to use all four sections. Of this amendment. More on that when we come back. Oh. The view with a cliffhanger. This was a thing. This was a thing.
1: And now, this is a sketch. Therefore, it is my sad duty to report to you, Vice President Tyler that God in his infinite mercy has allowed President Harrison to shuffle off this mortal coil and to slip the surly bonds of Earth. You are now the leader of this great land, and we will transport you back to Washington to lead our troubled nation. And with God's mercy, give all of its citizens peace and comfort in these unprecedented times. Thank you, Secretary Thomas. I must now be alone with my thoughts and the
0: Lord and tell my spouse of this development in God's plan. If you would please wait outside my home for me. F*** yes! Letitia! Letitia, get in here! God, the shouting, what is happening? Tipper Canoe and Tyler, too! Now it's just... Tyler, too, baby. I don't understand, John. The boss is dead, and I'm in, baby. I'm the president, or the acting president, or the, who the f*** cares. We're getting out of this hole and living in the White House. Whoa!
1: You are drunk with power, John. Did you even consider how President Harrison might have suffered for you to assume this noble role? Suffered? We were suffering, Letitia. Four and a half hours in the
0: f***ing rain to hear that old racist Babylon about democracy and America's intelligence. Yeah, l- lots of intelligence. He speaks in a downpour without a coat on. Trust me, we've been spared.
1: But John, I do warn that you must be prudent in your heart and actions. H- H- Letitia, I do warn
0: that you got to stop busting my balls. Why can't you let me have this one fing thing? Okay, first thing I'm gonna do as president, I'm sending a message to your dad. Dear father in law, while you are telling everyone who will listen that I will never amount to anything, I will be ordering a well regulated militia to storm your fing sad ass house and occupy it and make you suck everyone's dicks because I'm the mother fing president. Tip a canoe and Tyler too. Yeah, too fing great. That's the two bitch. Mic drop. Michael, come here so I can drop you.
1: Thank you. This was a sketch.
0: Okay, so after the 25th Amendment gets ratified in 1967, it starts to... Be put into practice because in 1973, Vice President Spiro Agnew has to resign the vice presidency because of a bribery scandal. And if you've never read Rachel Maddow's Bag I Man. It's awesome. Oh, I know there's a podcast that goes along with it. I didn't listen to the podcast. I read the book. It is fascinating. But he's gone. Bottom line is he's gone. Nixon did not have to wait until the end of his second term. In fact, he would never even really had a chance to appoint somebody because he wasn't going to run for office again. But now Nixon can appoint Congressman Gerald Ford to serve out the rest of Agnew's term as vice president. That will end in January of 1977 when Nixon's second term is over and both the house and the Senate vote for Ford majority easy. He's very likable. Believe it or not, putting Ford in as the vice president actually speeds up Nixon's resignation process because had they ousted Nixon and Agnew, then the Speaker would take over the presidency, and he was a Democrat. So a lot of Republicans are the ones that vote actually to like get Nixon out. They only did that because Ford was now there, and they could breathe a little bit. Then in 1971, we get Section 1 applied, which is in 1974, Nixon resigns uh, because of the Watergate scandal, and Gerald Ford is sworn in as president. And then we go back to section two, because now Ford has to nominate a vice president before the term is over, and he nominates uh, Nelson Rockefeller to be his vice president, and Rockefeller is approved by the House and Senate, and Rockefeller will finish the term, which ends in January of 77, all right? Now, section three, this one's very common, because presidents have to undergo anesthesia colonoscopies, right? So they write a letter, right? The letter's delivered to the Capitol. They go under the anesthesia. The vice president is now the acting president. Usually they just chill and just like wait till the, the president wakes up and then the president signs their letters saying, hey, I'm ready to go back to work and the power's transferred again. So all's right with the world. In 1985, it's really one of the first times this is enacted. I think it is the first time it's enacted, I apologize, because uh, Ronald Reagan had to have colon cancer removed. Oh, wow. So George Bush took over for a little bit. And Reagan was hesitant about it because he's like, oh God, I'm old. They're going to think like, I'm not fit for this. But then in 2002, 2007, Bush had to have colonoscopies and Cheney just chilled.
1: For the first time ever. For the first
0: time. And then, here we go, folks. Section four. Oh mama. Oh lady liberty. Oy vey, we have service. Let's go fly kite. So once again, folks, just a reminder, section four is saying if the president is incapacitated and unable to do their duties, a majority of the cabinet can say he has to go or two-thirds of the Congress, two-thirds of the Senate have to say he has to go. But what exactly does... Incapacitated me. what mean what? Me? What exactly does it mean that he can't do his duties? So the first time this is rumored to happen is in 1974, because at the height of Watergate, Richard Nixon was going through a pretty big mental health crisis. Um, he was he seemed suicidal and he was just disintegrating, and so the cabinet was worried that he might start a war or do something rash to help take the focus off of Watergate, and so there was. Uh, minor discussions of what do we do now and luckily he resigned before that all happened and then 1981 there was an assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan I didn't realize it was 81 so early yeah two months into his first term he got shot and they said that because there was so much goodwill for him after he was shot and survived that he was able to accomplish a lot because nobody wanted to like Go against the 80 year old, the the, the 70 year old man who had just been shot. (laughs) Uh, But the assassination attempt on him is literally a clusterfuck of a crisis, clusterfuck of a crisis. And it really is section four. And what the fuck do we do? So remember, Reagan at this time is the oldest president in history. He had been shot. The bullet was about an inch away from his heart and he was undergoing surgery to have the bullet removed. So they rush him into surgery, and because they rush him into surgery, they can't – he doesn't have time to sign a letter being like, hey, I'm going under, folks. Well, just give me a second. Okay, at least we have the vice president in case there's a crisis. But here's the problem. The vice president, George Bush, Poppy Bush, he's in a plane going from Texas to Washington, and the plane has no fucking reception. So they can't make phone calls. They can't get information. When they, they, when, sometimes they can get a phone call. It doesn't happen all the time. Can't check Twitter. So he can't. That was upsetting to him. And so he can't invoke Section 4 being like, hey, I'll take over because he's on a plane. And by the time he landed in Washington, Reagan was already out of surgery. So it is a big clusterfuck. Reagan's doctor is yelled at, like, why didn't you have him sign something before he went in? But the worst to make things, because once again, Who shot this guy? Cold War. What's happening? Right. We don't know. what. Is this an attack on the country or is this just a lone crazy person? And to make things even worse, General Al Haig, who was the secretary of state at the time, went into the press room and told all these reporters who were just what is happening, waiting to hear what's happening. He decided to calm everyone down in this very infamous clip. Who is making the decisions for the government right now? Who's making the decisions? Constitutionally,
2: gentlemen, you have the president, the vice president, and the secretary of state in that order. And should the president decide he wants to transfer the helm to the vice president, he, he will do so. As of now, I am in control here in the White House pending return of the vice president and in, in close touch with him if something came up i would check with him of course
0: so the secretary of state who is fifth right vice president or fourth i should say fourth in line for the presidency just went on in front of the world because everyone's watching this, yeah to say i'm in charge now i'm the captain now i'm the captain look at me and this pretty much ruins al haig's career because one you're not next in line after the vice president you've got two other people to get through before we get to you. And why is this guy in charge?
1: Who the hell's Al Haig?
0: Then Reagan again. In 1987, in the midst of the Iran Contra scandal, it was being discussed among staff that Reagan was showing little signs of interest in the job. He was tired. He wanted to watch TV in the residence. He didn't really want to do any work. And they couldn't figure out what was going on. And the word that kept popping up was dementia, Alzheimer's. And so it was determined that the staff would perform an observation on Reagan at his first meeting with his new chief of staff and if there's problems we're going to start talking about invoking 25th amendment. And at this meeting Reagan came in and was up and chipper and showed no signs of exhaustion and no signs of mental fatigue and was totally with it. The thought that he had been dement- that he had dementia that was tabled. And everything was fine. His doctor said, I saw him every single day. He's like, I never saw him have dementia. But then he gets diagnosed with it five years after leaving office. But there was that quiet possibility of we might have to do something. Sure. We've seen it twice in the past few years uh, with the presidency of Donald Trump. The first one is in 2017 when the firing of FBI director James Comey sparked outrage from many with the idea that Donald Trump was really acting in his own interest and not the country's with the firing. And there were small discussions about do we approach Mike Pence, the vice president, to take over for Trump. But these conversations legitimately went absolutely nowhere. But they had to be had. Well, then it goes back to the question of what does inability mean? What does incapacity mean? What does inability mean? You might go, well, he fired him. Because he knows this guy has dirt on him and therefore he's uh, not doing his oath, which means he's unable, he's unable to perform his duties. Or you can say he's the president of the United States and the president has the right to fire whomever they have under their control for whatever reason that they deem fit. Sure. So this is hard. This is not Woodrow Wilson laying in a bed unable to talk. This is not George Bush under anesthesia. The big one that we're probably the most familiar with is twenty twenty one after the insurrection on the Capitol, January sixth, with uh, t- which Trump allegedly ignited, and by allegedly,
1: are you living under a rock? He, oh, <laughs> he, he lit the he got his zippo out and just threw it right on there.
0: I said allegedly for legal reasons.
1: Well, and and I'm not talking, I'm talking about uh, the podium that was uh, there. Ah,
0: Fuck it. The man ignited the the whole (laughs)
1: fucking thing. What the hell are we saying? Allegedly. Allegedly.
0: Yeah. Allegedly. Yeah. Walks like a duck, talks like a duck. And because of this, the calls for him to go were very mighty. And the discussions had definitely reached Pence and members of the cabinet. Some who were just very publicly saying, yeah, we're considering invoking The 25th Amendment, Section 4. Some resigned in protest in the cabinet. And I feel like they resigned because they didn't want to be caught voting. If they had to to vote, if they had to actually take a vote and say, yeah, I think he's not able to fulfill his duties. Yeah. So anyway, that is a history of the 25th Amendment that all sparked from a guy saying, I don't need to wear a coat. Or a guy saying, I'm thirsty. Who has water? What color, Mr. President? Brown. Yeah, some of that brown water. Give me some of that brown water. But that's that, my friend. This was a thing. And I have a feeling it will continue to be a thing because Section 4 of the 25th, I think, is so vague on what exactly does incapacitated, unable, what does that all mean? How do you define that? Who determines that? And I think they probably left it vague on purpose, but it hasn't done anything really. It's not helpful. It's not helpful. Be specific,
1: like we learn in acting. Be specific. Be specific. Be be specific specific You want to play a game? Yeah. This was a thing, and now it's a quiz. This is a this was a quiz. <laughs>
2: William Henry Harrison, what a president dying in office! That's a that's a one month, one month, month, one month Memphis in. What do you think Memphis he achieved? What do you what what do you think he really was able to do in that first? It's just selecting cabinet members. Really a lot of sneezing. He didn't
0: even finish a cabinet. I don't think. Maybe an armoire. He finished an armoire, <laughs> and I know he was working on his wife's bidet at the time. They just got plumbing in the White House. So. William Henry Harrison, first president not to take his own shit out on a bucket. <laughs> oh,
2: nice. So he died. He died on the job, yes, which he is which is a, a tragedy. Yes, but he's not the only person that's died on the job like why we have had celebrities it's not uncommon for actors and actresses to die on the job oh movies projects can film for months and months on end somebody might die in the middle of it something might have to happen to finish that project so we're gonna play a game called dead on the job you're gonna go head to head in this This there's another lightning round oh okay? okay so you're each gonna have 30 seconds i'm gonna name seven names of dead actors or actresses And you will have to name the project that they were working on when they passed away. Okay. So, who would like to go first? Rob, Ray? Anybody feeling particularly adventurous and morbid this evening? I'll go. Okay, here you go, Ray. 30 seconds now don rickles toy story 4 philip seymour hoffman
1: oh god skip bruce lee bruce lee uh enter the dragon paul walker uh fast five chris farley chris farley was working on shrek the Lugosi Oh, jeez uh, Was he working on the Ed Wood movie, Plan 9? I don't know James Dean Ah, ja- uh, Rebels Hot Cause
2: Alright, you got Don Rickles Oh, I did Philip Seymour Hoffman was working on Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2 Really?
1: Who replaced him on that?
2: I don't know, I didn't see <laughs> yeah. this I don't know what they did uh, Bruce Lee was working on Game of Death You did not get that one Paul Walker was Fast and the Furious seven. Seven
1: nailed Chris Farley with Shrek. Shrek, yeah. They had a lot of the uh, audio for it done already, and then Mike Myers came in, and then he did it, and then like had to redo all of it because he was like, "I want to do Scottish," and like it was millions of dollars that they had to do. It worked out in the long run, but a lot of stuff went on before Shrek came out. Wow, you nailed Bella Lugosi. Plan Nine from Outer Space. I'll give you Plan Nine for sure. James Dean, you
2: almost had it. It was Giant. Was it Giant? Yeah, you Damn. started saying Giant. Three of seven. Pretty good,
0: pretty good. Rob Schneider. Oh, uh, Yeah, this is gonna be hard. Okay. Vic Morrow. The Twilight Zone. John Ritter. Uh oh, the Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter. John Candy. a, wagon, a Wagon's East. Keith Ledger. Keith Ledger Bet Man. I don't know. Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed. Of uh, 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 Harry Potter. Marilyn Monroe. Uh oh God. Oh, I don't I don't know. Red Fox. Oh, his his TV show. Uh oh God. With um uh, 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 Eddie Murphy produced it. I want to say it was called like Royal Pains. You're well over time, but here's here's what here's how you
2: did.
1: Vic Morrow nailed. John Ritter, you nailed. Eight and, simple and rules. I will say this: he got the extended, uh... right? Yeah, he got for dating my teenage daughter. Yeah, the you whole could thing, yeah, because they
2: shortened it for TV guide. You also got John Candy with Wagons East. Keith Ledger was Imaginarium of Dr. Dr. Parnassus. Oh, okay. Oliver Reed was Gladiator. Oh! oh. Marilyn Monroe, Something's Gotta Give. And Red Fox, The Royal Family. Ah! Uh, oh, Royal
0: Family! I'm gonna
2: give you that one, just because you knew more about it than, I think, anybody else on
0: Earth except Eddie Murphy, so. He died on set, and he he died of a heart attack, and he clutched his heart. Yeah, he And, hit it, and right. died, and everyone thought he was <laughs> doing, doing his, like, fit. Elizabeth, I'm coming! Yeah, and they didn't, do, they were just, I think they applauded. Della Reese! That's who played his wife in it, Delarese. Well, I'm gonna give you that point,
2: and that, just with the Delarese knowledge for just an eeks out a win over Ray. I'll give it to him.
0: Thank you. Thank Congratulations. you.
2: Congratulations. This has been Dead on the Job. Shout out to Della Reese.
0: Shout out to Della Reese. The only podcast in the history of podcasts to say that. Not even the
1: Della Reese podcast says it, Just so weird. Dealing with Dela. <laughs> and I will say this probably isn't the first time she's been mentioned on the show, knowing Rob. <laughs> Sponsored by Squarespace, honey. She's too commercial for something. Reese's Pieces. <laughs>
0: alright friends Uh, thank you so much for listening to today's history lesson we talked about the death of William Henry Harrison and the 25th amendment if you remember where you were when William Henry Harrison died (laughs) send us a tweet or a DM us or a telegram telegram. Uh, thanks so much and uh, take care bye
1: Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing. And a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cutcut Schwartzberg. Our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reesey, Our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford. Our graphic designer, Natalie's nothing-too-graphic, DeSavia. And finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ThisWasAThingPod. And Facebook, we are ThisWasAThingPodcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you.